0: Heart series on pain. I think we're going to start with a case. A, a case. case. We're going to start with a case. <laughs> a story. A story, <laughs> as, if
1: you will.
2: <laughs> a true story, in fact. This happened to my nanny's sister. Oh, okay. This story. Well, we've got Miss Lee. She's a 56-year-old
0: female with a history of localized breast cancer, five years ago treated with a lumpectomy, RT to the breast, and recently completed... What's RT? Oh, sorry. Radiation therapy to the breast, and recently completed adjuvant hormonal therapy. She was shoveling snow and noted back pain afterwards. It has now been present for about three weeks. It has been getting progressively worse. She now can't sleep at night due to the pain, and acetaminophen and ibuprofen have not been effective. You are doing your palliative care rotation on a palliative consultation service at a tertiary hospital. You are
2: asked to see Ms. Lee. What are you gonna do? Well, I guess, first of all, I think Ms. Lee first would have gone to her family doctor. Likely, yes. The difficulty for family doctors is people come in with back pain all the time. I guess my question would be, how do we know that this isn't just garden variety back pain that's from shoveling snow, which I think, well, Ms. Lee did think uh, that this was the cause of it.
1: Yeah, and as a family doctor, seeing... Um Low back pain, nonspecific back pain, is probably pretty bread and butter. So um, you'd have to have a pretty high index of suspicion to think of something else. But this is a woman with a history of cancer. And I think we need to always be cognizant of the fact that it could be more than mechanical low back pain.
2: Yeah, and I think one of the points that that I like to make uh, with students is that when someone has a history of active cancer or recent cancer, even if it's in remission and they come with pain, the most likely cause of that pain is the cancer, and sometimes the patient really wants to think that it's something else, um, but most likely it is going to be the cancer, and you need to rule that out before you can say that it's a non malignant cause. So you're saying it's likely the cancer has progressed, and it's now causing Yeah, or in okay. her case, the cancer's recurred. She thought she was cured, and um, it's, it's going to be different for her. Okay.
3: And I guess almost the opposite, too, in someone who has, like, you know they have cancer, not just always assuming that pain is related to the cancer and maybe missing some other cause as well. So it kind of goes both ways in keeping an open mind, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how would you define pain?
2: Oh, I think Amani's good at that. <laughs> Get out of your
1: dictionary. So I think that just for the listeners out there, for our learners, it's always good to have a few resources at your fingertips. And when it comes to a lot of this pain terminology, the International Association for the Study of Pain, or the IASP, has a good website with a lot of different terms that you can easily access, a lot of definitions. Um, So pain, as they define it, is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage. That's, That's pretty much the simple version. The extended version is or described in terms of such damage. But I think that's an easy thing to remember, an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage.
2: Maybe I'd I'd add to that the the whole idea of emotional. I think we talked a little bit in the first podcast about palliative care and the need to understand the whole person. And this really comes to the fore when when it comes to looking after pain because the way I think about it, you've got a pain sensation, it enters the brain and then the brain can either inflame the pain or dampen it down, depending on uh, where the brain is at. And the story I think about, it was a surgeon in uh, the First World War, he worked in France and he had soldiers coming in and he'd simply record, they had horrendous injuries, and he'd record what percentage of the soldiers required morphine. Interestingly, it was pretty low, it was like 30% of the soldiers. So you know why did so few of them um, need morphine and the answer is the meaning of the pain the meaning was that they were injured but they weren't going to go back to the battlefield and they wouldn't be killed and mm-hmm. so the pain had a positive meaning for them and so basically when pain's positive say in a sporting event you might break something but you carry on um, it's uh, something that, that isn't exacerbated by the brain. But when the pain means your cancer has progressed or means that you're fearful, will you be in more pain because you know it's from something the doctors have said they can't take away completely, then that pain's going to be
1: exacerbated by the brain. Right. It's going to take on a whole different sort of experience for them.
0: It's fascinating.
1: So talk to me about pain classification.
0: Okay.
1: Anyone? So, I mean, our teachings in palliative care, (laughs) Bueller. Uh, I don't think any of our listeners understand these pop references. I like them. 1980s, (laughs) 90s? No. Bueller. No. They entertain us. Anyway, so in in teaching uh, med students and residents, um, we talk about nociceptive, nociceptive versus neuropathic pain. So I don't know if anybody wants to tackle that. to with. So nociceptive pain, we break up into somatic versus visceral pain. And somatic pain involves the stimulation of nociceptors in the skin, muscle, uh, bone, joints, and ligaments typically. Whereas visceral pain involves stimulation of nociceptors in the viscera, peritoneum, and pleural cavity. And just to back up, when we're talking about nociceptive pain, we're talking about pain that arises from actual or threatened damage to non-neural tissue, and it is due to the activation of nociceptors. Okay, so that's nociceptive pain. Can you give me an example of nociceptive pain, like something common mm-hmm. in, a, in a cancer? Yeah, so a person with bony metastases would have sharp, well-localized pain, let's say wherever that lesion is, let's say in the hip, um, and that would be a somatic nociceptive pain. Okay. Versus a malignant bowel obstruction, it's more this kind of diffuse, achy, crampy pain um, that we would call visceral pain. Okay. Yeah. All this right. is all fascinating to me because this is not my area. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then neuropathic pain is caused by damage to the peripheral or central nervous system. And when it's injured, the peripheral nerves can be um, increasingly sensitive to stimulation or they may spontaneously fire. Can we talk about the typical features of each pain type? We talked a little bit about somatic versus visceral, but anything else to add? Like what's typical about somatic pain? What do we see clinically as features?
2: Well, I think somatic pain, people can describe it often quite easily. Uh, They can point to where it is and they're pretty clear Uh, for example, with bone pain, they know what makes it worse. You know, I I find people always have some difficulty. The hardest question people have is when we ask, what's the quality of your pain, or how do you describe it? I think that's where people really struggle. Uh, But I think with somatic pain, they can usually localize it. And, and, uh, you know, they're often talking about a pain that's quite sharp or a pain that's uh, like a pulled muscle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I always
1: start off as open as possible when I'm taking a pain history. So, what does your pain feel like? But then, if people are struggling, sometimes I give little hints or, mm-hmm. or clues, you know. So, I'll say, is it burning? Is it tingling? Is it sharp? Is it dull? Is it <laughs> achy? You know, I just throw out these kinds of descriptors and see what they grab onto. But yeah, I agree. So well-localized, often sharp, can be achy, like a pulled muscle, like you were saying, throbbing, pulsing. And then sometimes, depending on where it is, you can reproduce it on palpation. Mm -hmm. And then if you're talking about visceral pain, what are some of the typical things you see? I think we see pressure, squeezing, colicky or crampy Mm -hmm. uh, type pain. Like I say, generally diffuse, like it's not as easy to pinpoint exactly where it is. And some people, some patients, I find say, you know, it's not pain; it's discomfort. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not really pain. It's I'm just not comfortable, or doesn't feel good, or you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then visceral pain, you can also see the referred pain. Mm-hmm.
2: So, for example, today yeah. I met a woman who has a lot of cancer in her liver, but her pain was in her right shoulder. Yeah. And I'm sure and that's a classic cancer,
1: right? Familiar classic. with that yeah. one? Yeah. Um, another common one that trips people up is the SI joint radiating down to, you know, up to, you know, even to the distal femur kind of area. That can happen. So that's one pearl that I often teach residents. But yeah, referral patterns, quite commonly seen. Okay, what about neuropathic pain? So many potential features, right, that we can see in neuropathic pain. I don't know if you guys want to... I know it as like burning... Burning is pretty pathognomonic. Yeah, absolutely. Tingling. Mm -hmm. I'm just throwing things out there. I'm your student today. (laughs)
2: Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Well, you get an A.
2: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So we often talk about that it's got an aching quality, but there can also be a lancinating quality to Mm -hmm. it. So Mm -hmm. people would describe that certain... shock-like, right? Yeah, Yeah. shock-like quality, Mm -hmm. and that can be instigated sometimes just by touching the skin, uh, overlying this... uh, area of nerve damage and um, yeah people will will talk about that aching and then the lancinating or shock
1: yeah some other features you might see so the burning stinging tingling some people talk about pins and needles right so the -hmm. paresthesia as you have that pins and needles a sensation of numbness whether that's subjective or objective Uh, and then the shock like lancinating pain radiating pain is common right so we talk Mm -hmm. about radiculopathy so radiating along the distribution of the nerve see that sometimes as well cool so some other terms that maybe we can decide if we want to okay. yeah. but some other terms dysesthesia allodynia hyperalgesia hyperesthesia and this is something that students can get asked neurologists love big fancy words <laughs> <laughs> yeah but in order to impress your preceptor oh, there you learn some of these <laughs> yeah all right. So, dysesthesia. How would you define dysesthesia? I actually struggled with this one. It's actually one of the more common uh, presentations of neuropathic pain that we see, but it's simply defined as an unpleasant, abnormal sensation, and it can be spontaneous or evoked. That's not useful at all. But I also but I think <laughs> if it does that burning, that okay. burning sensation, that discomfort versus, um, versus the lancinating, shock-like. Dysesthesia is more that burning. Presentation. Would you agree with that, Alton, or do you have a different? I was
2: just trying to. What's the, what's the uh, one where you have increased pain? Oh, that's allodynia. Okay, yeah. Okay. So then
1: we get into the allodynia. Okay. So dysesthesia is that that unpleasant sensation, the burning pain, versus the lancinating okay. neuropathic pain, which so is, that is the achy shock-like. underlying pain that they have. Yeah, and that's yeah. the more common one we see. I would say. Yeah. Then allodynia is um, pain due to a stimulus that normally does not produce pain. Okay. That's like the tissue on the arm causing a lot of pain. Yeah. i remember never like, that in school. It doesn't have to be a tissue on the arm, but yeah, something that shouldn't be painful is now mm-hmm. painful, right? And then hyperalgesia is something that might be uncomfortable, but it causes this disproportionate pain response, more than you'd expect, right? And then hyperesthesia is this big umbrella term that includes allodynia and hyperesthesia and hyper... I'm sorry, hyperalgesia. So hyperesthesia is the umbrella that includes allodynia and hyperalgesia and that is defined as increased sensitivities to stimulation um, yeah simple as that okay. so 100%. if you want to press your preceptor learn these mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and then a couple of other important definitions, can we talk about breakthrough pain and within that the subset, uh, the subtype known as incident pain
0: mm-hmm.
1: how do you define those?
3: Um, so when I think of breakthrough pain, I think of sort of like that pain that happens intermittently for people, like maybe they have pain that's there all the time and perhaps it's controlled with medications, but then depending on what's happening, they'll have these periods of time where they're experiencing more pain above that sort of baseline pain. So that's what I see as breakthrough pain. And often people need to take some extra medication to control that. And then incident pain is kind of a type of breakthrough pain that happens when people are moving or um, doing some sort of activity or
1: some type of, yeah, there's something
3: that kind of brings it. Right. There's a, like a predictable
1: pain. activity yeah. that will trigger the pain, right? So whether yeah. that's walking, for example, or for some people, it's coughing or mm-hmm. even like dressing changes can trigger that in some yes. people. Yes. Yeah. 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 So the, um, the International Association for the Study of Pain defines breakthrough pain as episodic pain despite baseline control. Yeah, so that's a pretty simple. Way the way it. I
0: explain it to patients is like it's breaking through the the pain control that you have. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Just... And we know it's it is common.
0: I
2: think over sixty percent of
1: cancer. Absolutely, patients. yeah, and that's that's evidence based for sure. Yeah, approximately sixty percent of cancer patients in Canada experience breakthrough pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important also to differentiate between end of dose failure versus breakthrough pain, mm-hmm. because end of dose failure suggests that your baseline pain control is inadequate mm-hmm. because you're not reaching. You're not in that you're not well into that therapeutic window, such that it's lasting the duration you would expect, right? Like in our short-acting opioids, that would be around four hours. Yeah. Long-acting opioids, we'd expect it on average for 12 hours, yeah. right? So if it's if people are are having end-of-dose failure and they're having pain that happens sooner than we'd expect on a regular basis, not sort of episodically once in a while, then we have to start thinking about well, why is this happening? Why is the pain, is it progressing? Like, is there something going on underlying in this person's disease? And also, do we have the right dose of opioid or analgesia? And interval, right? Right, yeah. Although I'd say, like, typically I don't like to dose short-acting opioids more frequently than Q4 hourly. No. You know, I'd prefer that I get the right dose. I was thinking more controlled release, going from, like, a Q12
0: to a Q8 kind of thing every once in a while or like fentanyl patch we can get into
2: that
1: yeah absolutely yeah and some people have just specific um yeah um
2: but I think it really shows how important it is to be asking a question about the pattern of the pain because you know it's very different if they have breakthrough pain and it's random versus breakthrough pain that always happens after they walk down the road to get their mail versus You know, it happens every night at 7 p.m., and they take their next medicine at 8 p.m., and it's end-of-dose failure. Yeah, totally.
1: And I also think it's important to differentiate between incident pain versus non-incident breakthrough pain because the way we titrate our pain medicines, and we're going to talk about opioids in another episode, but I don't think we're going to get into this as much. The way we titrate our, our medicines depends on, you know... For example, when you're looking at somebody who's requiring, even if it's four breakthroughs a day, mm-hmm. four PRN medicines a day because of incident pain, you may not achieve better control by increasing their baseline dose. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I think that kind of leads us into our next: how
0: to take a pain history and how important it is to have all the details. Allison, how do you take a pain history? Oh, oh wait. before we do that, can oh. we talk
1: about total pain a little bit? Or sure. Should we do Did that? We do that right? Yeah. We didn't do that. Right? Yeah, no.
2: what do you have to say?
1: But <laughs> oh, you love Dame Cecily Saunders. I feel like you should take that on. Uh, she's a gal. <laughs> yeah, the,
2: you know, I mean, I, I, think, I think my, you know, I'm pretty, pretty down earth with this. And, you know, I think the total pain, we have talked about it a little bit, our first podcast uh, about uh, it's, it's the pain story really for a person and it's the meaning of the pain. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think, again, I will talk to patients about this because I think they need to know why I'm asking them questions Mm -hmm. about their life, about what the pain means to them, about their goals. And yet I really don't think we're good physicians in treating
1: pain if we don't understand the context Mm -hmm. of the pain. Totally agree with that, Allison. I think, yeah, and just just for the learners um, to have sort of definitions that are accepted, More or less, it's helpful to just say that... um, So Dame Cicely Saunders, who's one of... We've talked about her in a previous episode. She's one of the pioneers of the modern hospice movement. She is the pioneer of the modern hospice movement. Um, She defined... She created this construct known as total pain, and it recognizes that pain is more than just physical, right? So it's this multidimensional construct, and it includes physical but also psychological, social, spiritual, emotional domains... It, exactly what you're saying, practically speaking, right? That you have to take, take a look at it more than just the physical aspect. Yeah, and
2: I think uh, research has supported this. I remember uh, reading about uh, an experiment that uh, some psychologists were doing. Um, it was out of California, and they basically had healthy volunteers, and they were simply playing a virtual game with other players where they were tossing a ball, and then the other players stopped tossing the ball for them. So they were being uh, rejected, and the same areas in the brain lit up on functional MRI as uh, light up when you have pain. So mm. the fact that rejection was uh, causing our brains to react in the same way was a pretty interesting study. Right, that social dimension.
0: Yeah.
2: Alison, yeah. oh, how would what? you take the pain history? Ah. <laughs> well, um, thinking back to med school, 1900. uh, um, She's not that old, I promise. I certainly learned um, simply to ask the following questions about the quality of the pain, the quantity of the pain, where it was, uh, when it started, and the pattern of the pain. Was it getting worse or was it getting better? What time of day was it happening? Associated uh, features, so anything such as nausea or numbness or weakness, and then um, uh, both uh, asking about um, things that might exacerbate the pain and also what had alleviated the pain. Um so that was the very basics I was taught, but you know I've also added some on. What about you guys?
1: Yeah, what did they learn in the 2000s? Th- what did we learn in the two thousands, I guess? <laughs> in the two thousands. It's no, the no, guys yeah, yes. in the two thousands.
3: <laughs> yes, they like to teach us kind of acronyms and things to yes. be able to remember things. Mnemonics. I mnemonics. I've heard mnemonics by the Yeah. Day. Yes, yeah, so there's some <laughs> mnemonics that you can use. And p- different people have different ones, like OPQRST. UVUV. <laughs> oh, yes. um, no. Which UV-L-B. is like onset. Um, oh, we skip the P. Mm-hmm. Oh, so there's different versions. Oh, there's different versions. Onset,
1: palliating, provoking is my version, but I think it was different for you. And then severity, sorry, yeah, me and the alphabet are struggling today. Mm. Onset, provoking, palliating, quality. R. Radiation. S. Severity. T. Timing, as in time of day. Yeah. And then understanding and values. Okay. Yeah. But you have a slightly different version. Although we probably
3: don't want to confuse people by giving them too many versions, so, so we'll just stick with that one.
1: <laughs> okay, and there's also this idea of the FIFE. Yeah, so,
3: and I think that gets to sort of the U and the V of the previous acronym as well, mm-hmm. like asking people about their feelings around the pain. Um, oh, yeah, I know it. <laughs> I know it. I'm the one who wrote about it. Yeah. Um, when we were planning this, uh, so their feelings about the pain, kind of their ideas in terms of, like, what's causing it, um, the function piece that Allison spoke t- to about, like, what's the impact on their function, and then an important one, kind of their expectations, like what do they expect in terms of how the pain is going to continue and what do they expect that we might be able to help them with.
1: I think that's a huge
2: yeah. one. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, putting that in very practical terms, when we use... Um, We generally, when we're asking about severity, we'll ask people to rate their pain from zero to 10, uh, a scale. And obviously everyone is using the scale in a different way. So most of us will ask them to anchor that scale. So to tell us what level of pain would be acceptable to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And then zero is like
3: imagining no pain and 10 is the worst possible imaginable pain.
1: Yep. And I agree that anchoring to the tolerable level of pain gives you a goal to work towards. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so we know in research studies, you know, your average research subject will say a pain less than four is adequate, but um, certainly out in the real world, there's people using the scale in all different ways.
1: I also think, though, that if somebody says zero out of ten pain, what do you say to that? I say, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, you know, zero out of ten pain means, uh, number one, they've got expectations that we probably can't meet, And it just um, kind of is a bit of a red flag to me that I've got someone who um, is behaving differently than, I mean, there's lots of reasons why one can say they want zero out of 10 pain, but it's a red flag that they are different than your average population that you're treating. Mm -hmm.
3: And often like zero out of 10 pain isn't something that we can really achieve because it would mean Using medications and doses that you end up with all the side effects, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's the the challenge of trying to achieve the zero to ten. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. yeah I totally agree.
2: I'd say the other thing, just it's not quite related to the case, but um, when I'm monitoring how well I'm doing with treating pain, I I monitor three things. I look at, you know, we, we all know to go back and ask the patient, well, what's your pain today, and we're you know, hoping to hear that the number is lower. Um, but I'll also monitor the amount of medication they're using because that can tell me something about their pain control. And then I'll also monitor their function because occasionally we'll have patients where they report their pain as the same, um, but they're able to function better. And so you've actually achieved better pain control even though you haven't changed the number so it's important to get at how you're improving pain by more than just asking about the number every day.
1: Yeah, and we don't wanna paint with broad brush strokes. We don't wanna generalize, but just from my experience so far, i found that people who tend to not report an improvement in pain, but have an improvement in function, um, their, their sort of profile might look like pre-existing chronic pain or chronic pain because of the cancer. Possibly not always, but sometimes substance use disorders, mm-hmm. and also um, associated mental health or mood disorders, anxiety and depression, that might, or you know, to demedicalize it, this kind of the other dimensions of the total pain are really pronounced, right? Like mm-hmm. the um, spiritual, psychological, emotional aspects, perhaps.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, do you want to hear about Miss Lee's pain? Yeah. Okay. Her pain is sharp, well localized low back pain. It's burning and tingling pain down her right posterior lateral leg. The back and the side. Cute. A <laughs> <laughs> um, couple other things. She is opioid
1: naive, if somebody wants to kind of explain that, although I'm sure Means everybody she hasn't been on opioids really, right. significant doses of opioids anyway, so regular yeah. opioids in the past.
0: And like I said before, she's been using acetaminophen and. Um, ibuprofen, um, PRN, but has not been effective recently. Past medical history is uh, some hypertension and a remote TKA.
1: So, knee surgery. And no allergies. No
2: allergies, thank goodness. <laughs> and how bad is her pain right now as we're speaking with her? Her pain right now is 7 out of 10. Hmm. Well, this starts to make me think about the WHO analgesic ladder, okay. which was invented a very long time ago, but I think it's still a useful uh, thing to think about. Can you tell us about that, Jenny? I'm going to tell us about it. There's steps. I know the steps. So there's like step steps one, two, and three. Yeah. <laughs> I can pull it up on my phone really quick. Well. <laughs> I looked at it about ten minutes before I got here. Well, okay, it, you know, it let's, maybe it's not that important anymore, but I think the whole point of it was that if you have bad pain, you're not going to give someone more Tylenol. You're not even going to give them a Tylenol 3 if they have bad cancer pain. You can go straight to strong opioids. That's that actually going to be Also, it doesn't look like a ladder. It's, it looks like stairs. stairs. It looks like a mm.
0: staircase. Yeah.
1: Okay,
2: okay, it's not a ladder. I'd like I'm to
0: point out sure. that important point. It's <laughs> <That's laughs> not a ladder. That's what I was going to ask about. Because of this thing. I was like, but we never go to Cody. So you're allowed to just skip, to hop right up to... Well, I
1: think that's some of the concerns with the WHO analgesic ladder in, in our cancer pain population anyways is that you don't want somebody suffering for an unnecessary amount of time because you're trying to see acetaminophen mm-hmm. and then have them follow up a week or two later or whatever, you know, is happening in your clinic, that you want to use the right tool for the job. And mm-hmm. in somebody with severe cancer pain, I think it's completely reasonable to skip the weaker non-opioid or the weak opioid analgesis. Okay. Would you agree? That yeah. makes more sense to me.
0: I did not understand that before.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think the historical context of that was it was invented, I'm pretty sure, probably in the 70s. And, um, you know, that was a time where cancer pain was not treated. Also known as the movie Terms of Endearment, mm-hmm. where she goes running out into mm-hmm. the hallway and says, Treat my mother's
1: pain. Oh, I need to or watch that movie. Me too. Yeah. See, See we're, we're not an old one. <laughs> See, we're not as old as that. <laughs> and saying she's not
0: It's a good one. Nice. Cure On Mm -hmm. my list now. Okay, so we're going to go straight to a strong opioid then.
1: We will stay tuned regarding, like, we're going to have another episode to talk about opioids, right? And yet another to talk about non opioid analgesic options. So, but I guess we should talk about what else we should be looking at. Um, You know, we talked about getting this history and the management plan. And I think it's completely reasonable to have a management plan in place while we're still investigating the pain. In fact, I'd prefer that. Mm -hmm. We we actually manage the pain rather than like investigate it and then manage the pain. But we should be doing both at the same time, I think. And um, I think, Alison, you have a good way of speaking about this in terms of why it's important to diagnose the pain rather than simply Mm -hmm. treating it.
2: Yeah, I I guess I... You know, come across a number of learners who think that in palliative care we mostly see people and then prescribe them opioids, and that's what they want to learn from us. And you know, it, it is true we prescribe a lot of opioids, but the important piece is that we're still making a diagnosis of the pain, uh, and you can't skip that part. Uh, so, for example, in our patient here, if her um, back pain is due to a new diagnosis of Uh, metastases in her back, then um, opioids will be one part of the pain uh, treatment, but there's also radiation therapy available. Uh, Once we know she has metastatic disease, then she'll have to talk to her oncologist about chemotherapy. Uh, Sometimes there's analgesic, uh, local analgesia that we can use. So it's really important to understand what's causing it.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Yeah, and I think in terms of follow-up, We talked about this 0 to 10 scale, which is also known as the visual analog scale. Um, And we want to follow up and see how that changes over time. We also want to look at potential side effects with the medications they're receiving and and think about those considerations going forward, how they're functioning. talked about that. To keep things simple, Mm -hmm. is there anything else we should add, or is that a good place I just wonder about a summary. Patient comes in, what are your steps? So I think we're talking about we're going to take a history of the pain. Mm -hmm. We're going to try to clinically classify what kind of pain this person has, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm a physical exam is always important. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And I think we haven't talked about that yet. But of course, that's part of our understanding the underlying cause or diagnosing the pain is doing that Mm -hmm. physical exam. Yeah. I was always taught that history is 90% of the information you're going to get, but of course a physical exam is quite important too. And a pain-focused physical exam is um, a special skill, I think, that you learn when you're training in palliative care as well. Um, So then we're doing our history, our physical exam. We have a management plan in the interim to help this person feel more comfortable while we're investigating and trying to figure out what the diagnosis is. Hopefully we have a bit of a differential diagnosis of what we think this pain is. Mm. So what by. would you
2: do for this particular lady, Ms. Lee, with her back pain? I would I would propose she first actually comes into the family doctor's office because she was just shoveling snow. Yeah. What, what do you think the family doctor should be doing in terms of investigation?
1: Yeah, so let's start with the physical exam maybe. What would the physical exam look like? Um, I think there's the usual, and I think family doctors are so, again, like – Low back pain or back pain is such a common phenomenon for them, so the typical physical exam in terms of um, inspection, you know, um, palpation, range of motion, the typical things that they do, and also looking at those specialized tests, um, you know, the straight leg raise. Um, you might do a focused neurological exam to rule out anything that you need to, so, so what we'd be worried about, something called a spinal cord compression. And I tell my learners that anybody who has cancer who's presenting with back pain is a spinal cord compression until you tell me why they are yeah. not, right? And so doing that. F- and that's just because it's something so serious, you don't ever want Absolutely. to miss it. Yeah. yeah, because it is one of our few palliative care emergencies. And intervening at the right time early enough can really change that person's trajectory in terms of their function and, what, and their quality of life going forward. Um, and so, some of our focused neurological exam—you know, not to get into get much detail—but we'd be looking for sensory changes, motor changes, saddle anesthesia. We'd be looking at rectal tone, right? So to rule out some of those red flags. Anything else? Reflexes, of course.
2: Yeah, and I watch how they walk across mm-hmm. the yeah. room. Yeah. And then I think this patient, I'd probably get an X-ray of their back. It's it's not a highly sensitive test, but it's one that. Uh, most of us can access fairly easily and then I'd get a bone scan. Yeah. I agree. Hopefully that'd get done in within a few weeks.
3: Yeah. And x ray roll rule like if there's any fractures or anything like that that's quite obvious. And then the bone scan will help identify if there is the, the metastatic disease.
1: Yeah, and I think what I counsel the patient about is the red flags and what to look out for that would warrant an emergency room visit. Right, so they don't just stay at home with this pain, thinking mm-hmm. things
0: are okay when they're getting worse, yeah.
1: So the red flag's spinal cord compression is going to be something we'll address in another episode.
0: Now that we, you guys have taught me all about pain and classifying pain, I want to go back to Miss Lee, and I want you to tell me what is her pain.
1: What the heck is going on, is what you're saying? Yeah. Mm.
0: Poor lady wants to know. How would you
3: classify her pain this is a good time to ask our listeners to think for themselves how would you classify your pain before we before we provide the answer so just think about that for a moment (laughs) oh no no I feel like I'm being quizzed Um,
1: what
3: is (laughs) what is um what is nociceptive and neuropathic pain I think it's a combination of the two Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and to drill down even further, I would say it's somatic mm-hmm. pain, because it's that well-localized, sharp pain, and the neuropathic pain with the uh, burning and tingling, so it's that dysesthetic. Yeah. paresthesias. for more fancy words to throw in there. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so
3: just a reminder to do that really good pain history, the thorough physical exam to try to figure out what's, um, like, rule out on any of the worrisome features, and then... Um, proceed with deciding if you need to do any investigations, and while you're doing those investigations, making sure that you start treatment so the patient has has some um,
0: some control of of this this experience that they're going through. All right, stay tuned for how we're gonna treat Miss Lee's pain with some medication.
1: Yeah, Hi. Jody. <laughs> and non pharmacologic options, of course, of course. yes. Oh yeah. For- <laughs> yeah we're right
0: we hope you enjoyed our episode today. We'd like to extend a special thank you to Zahid Damani for producing and editing our episodes, as well as for our beautiful website. Kasim Harani for the music, and Nishan Sharma for all of his support getting us up and running. Thank you also to our financial sponsor, Dr. Sreeni Chari. If you liked this episode, please let us know by clicking like and subscribing to our podcast. You can find It's Not All About Death on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform for podcasts. You can also find our episodes and connect with us anytime by visiting our website at itsnotallaboutdeath.com or on Instagram at itsnotallaboutdeath.